Today we are in conversation with Douglas Carswell, serving as a member of parliament from 2005 to 2017, both with the Conservative Party and UKIP in Harwich and, and later newly created Clacton. He was instrumental in the co-founding of Vote Leave and since leaving British politics, serves as the president and CEO of Mississippi Centre for Public Policy, fighting for conservative values across the south of the state and specifically Mississippi. This is Neil Limbu, contributor and editor for the Bruges Group. Firstly, for our British viewers here, Mr. Carswell, it's been a long time since they've seen you on the TV. Post-2017, how's your life outside the Westminster bubble been? And has the transition to American politics been easy as an outsider? I'm absolutely loving it here in America. I've taken to the United States, particularly to the southern United States, rather than duck the water. I, I sort of slightly felt as though I was coming home to America. People here believe in low taxes, limited government, unfailingly cheerful. Um, it's a wonderful place, um, America, but particularly the southern United States. And, you know, great things are happening over here. Um, the economy is doing relatively well. Um, the Mississippi economy is doing pretty well. Um, the southern United States is booming. Yep, lots of, lots of fun things going on over here. managed to do here in Mississippi many of the things that I would love to have done but failed to do in the UK. For example, we've dramatically cut taxes here in Mississippi. And the think tank that I head up, the Mississippi Centre for Public Policy, spearheaded a campaign to eliminate the state income tax. Now, we didn't quite manage to get rid of it entirely, but we now have a flat 4% personal income tax here in Mississippi, and the economy is beginning to grow as a consequence. We've deregulated the labor market by getting a whole bunch of restrictions and getting rid of them. We've pretty significantly over the past two years reduced the number of people on the public payroll here in Mississippi, removing that kind of drag effect that a big bloated payroll, public payroll has on the economy. What's so fascinating about the southern United States is how receptive people are to these ideas compared to the British conservative movement where these ideas are regarded as some sort of slightly quaint, quirky indulgence. Here, people are actually principled conservatives, and it's wonderful being in a state where principled conservative arguments have a really receptive audience. The politicians here in Mississippi have implemented a lot of this agenda, and the economic growth in Mississippi speaks for itself. Is there a British equivalent to Mississippi as a geographic area and a political area within the UK? Well, if, uh, if, if we look at Mississippi geographically, Mississippi is about geographically the size of England, but it has slightly fewer than 3 million people in it. So it's a, a pretty sparsely populated part of the world. Um, and um, in terms of climate, it's very, very different. But the, People are pretty much the same. They're entrepreneurial people who, if left to their own devices, would do great things. What's so sad about the UK is how government is preventing growth. Here in Mississippi, people are figuring out how to get rid of government and begin growth that Mississippi hasn't had for a long time. I'll give you an interesting statistic. This year, 2023, we'll see per capita income in Mississippi, the poorest state in America, overtake that of the United Kingdom for the first time ever. That's a measure, I think, of how Mississippi is generating growth by cutting taxes, deregulating, 
and doing exactly the kind of things the British Conservatives are supposed to do, but never actually get around to doing. As mentioned earlier, you were a key part of the EU referendum in 2016, co-founding Vote Leave. And even early on, I believe, in 2009, you tabled a bill in the House of Commons calling for a public referendum on the, on the UK's membership of the European Union. Early on in the referendum itself, the Eurosceptic movement had its troubles, as it seems like there was two anti-EU movements, a Vote Leave and Leave Means Leave. In your opinion, why were there divisions in the Eurosceptic movement? And would the yes vote, if united, increase the uh, overall uh, overall vote margin for the yes movement? So I first became involved in the Eurosceptic movement in Britain, actually through the Bruges. The very first time I was aware that I was a Eurosceptic was when I went to a very early meeting of the Bruges. I think it was in a reform club way back, literally six months after Patrick Robertson had founded it in sort of 1990 something, the early 1990s. And um, it, it was pretty clear to me that by the late 1990s, some of the tactics that Eurosceptics had used previously just, just weren't really progressing. The whole sort of Maastricht debacle showed, I think, a, a, a newer generation of Eurosceptics how not to do it. By talking about abstract things like sovereignty in the Constitution, yes, we, we cite fellow members of, of the movement, but the key is to grow the movement. How best to do that? Now, there were two different ways of approaching that. Nigel Farage, I think, hit upon a very successful way of expanding the reach of the Eurosceptic movement. He linked the issue of um, Britain's EU membership to things like immigration. There were others, I think, um, who linked the issue of EU membership to public services and the cost of public services and how we were spending money giving money to Brussels rather than money we could have had available for public services. Now, there were very fierce differences of opinion within the Eurosceptic movement as to how best to win people over. But I don't think any one strand of Euroscepticism could have done it on their own. Actually, in a weird way, I think the most valuable fellow travellers on the journey to Brexit that I came across were actually Labour supporting Brexiteers, people like Gisela Stewart, because they were able to reach a whole tranche of people that neither Nigel Farage nor Douglas Carswell nor Daniel Hannan nor Bill Cash nor some of the traditional Tory Eurosceptics could reach. So I actually think the Eurosceptic movement benefited by having an almost Hydra-like quality. And interestingly, every time the uh, Remain movement thought they had locked off one of the Hydra's heads, several more sprung up in its place. So I think there was great diversity in being Hydra-like. And um, I don't think we would have won if it had been a narrowly controlled movement. All, all popular movements need to have an element of dynamism and a, a sense that they are a network rather than a top-down-led uh, organization. So I suppose it's more like branching out then. If you've got one side to the argument, you've got another coin to protect you as well. You've absolutely got to have that. I mean, there are arguments that I saw the vote leave movement using that they had empirically tested on undecided voters that I never would have dreamed of using in a million years as someone who had spent 20 years thinking Eurosceptic thought. It, it takes a whole movement to marshal the kind of support you need. Now, often people say that Brexit was delivered by, you know, and then they'll mention, you know, Boris Johnson or Nigel Farage or Michael Gove. Absolute nonsense. Brexit was delivered by the millions of individuals who voted for it. 
And quite what motivated each of them to vote the way they did? Well, rather than having Brexit explained to us by the media elite, I think we need to best say that it was a decision made by millions of people and for millions of different reasons. You left the House in 2019 under the view that the main political goal of taking Britain out of the European Union was achieved. What vision did you have in mind that Brexit would have in 2017? And did you ever foresee the debacle of the Northern Irish Protocol or re more recently the Windsor Framework? I always recognised that when you gave Britain back self-governance, Britain would have to rediscover the art of governing herself. And I have to say, I don't think Britain has really managed that. When I talk to an American audience over here, I say, imagine if the American 13 colonies had overthrown British rule, seized their moment of independence in 1776, and then put someone like Aaron Burr in charge. I sometimes feel that Britain is full of government by Aaron Burrs, some third-rate charlatans who are in it for themselves. Um, I, I, I think partly this is because we're so used to taking instruction from the Brussels bureaucracy. The British civil service became um, almost sort of um, captivated by this idea that they should follow somebody else's instruction. Um, as a technocracy, the British civil servants, civil service rather likes being part of the Brussels technocratic empire. Sadly, we've not yet created ministers with the character and the caliber to challenge that. And I think we see a lot of evidence of this, government by civil service, government by civil servants. Um, clearly, that was the case when Theresa May rather haplessly formed an administration and the civil servants tried to get her to sign up to a version of Brexit that probably wasn't going to work. Um, Boris Johnson then came in and we saw a lot of intransigence. You know, the Irish question was used in effect as a lever to try to keep Britain within a, a, an EU orbit. I see now that there's something called a business council, not quite sure who voted for them, now saying that Britain needs to try to align herself semi-automatically to EU rulemaking. Look, self-governance means that we need to make these decisions for ourselves, and we need to uh, foster and nurture a generation of new politicians who have the moral sense of fibre and character to know that the buck stops with them. At the moment, I'm afraid we've got some pretty mediocre third raters. Um, we're going to have to get through this. We're going to have to see some uh, pretty turbulent change, I think, in our body politic. Um, I, I'm not yet sure that we have in the House of Commons the caliber of leadership that an independent country of 65 million people needs. Um, but, you know, the alternative is to go back to being part of the European Union, and that, that's a disaster. I mean, the European Union is uh, visibly declining with every set of trade figures. Um, no, we, we need to become and be properly independent. We need to flex those muscles of self-governance that have atrophied when we were in the EU. It's going to be a turbulent process, but we'll get there. I think a future Conservative administration will do the right things. I don't think we've really had a Conservative government since we left the European Union. So this is really just a dry run. Should we just give time for the Conservative government, uh, just let them test the water? Or is there too much done, created by the Conservative government? I, I think the current generation of people in the House of Commons, with a few exceptions, are just not really up to it. I mean, look at who's around the cabinet table. Um, there are some pretty major decisions, quite apart from Brexit, where they showed themselves to be simply incapable of making good choices. 
Um, long after COVID was understood to be a virus with a very low mortality rate, um, they imposed ruinous second and third lockdowns. Um, the cost of that is still being borne by British taxpayers and young Brits who had their uh, teenage years and young adulthood messed up. Um, I don't think that you can really regard anyone who is culpable and involved in the lockdown decision as capable of taking the tough macroeconomic decisions Britain needs to make. Take, for example, the issue of energy. You know, pretty much everyone in the House of Commons is culpable in going along with a commitment to net zero, which is going to mean economic ruin for Britain. They lack the um, independent thought process and the character to stand up to that. And I think both the catastrophic lockdown decision and the catastrophic decision to go ahead with net zero pretty much consign the current political generation to the, um, the, the, the um, failed um, list. But you know there will be, because the public demands it, a new generation of authentically conservative leaders who can come in and undo a lot of this damage. Um, the 1970s um, produced a lot of false dawns, but eventually it gave rise to catch-up. Um, here in America, um, the years of Watergate and then of uh, Jimmy Carter, when things really seemed to have gone wrong for the Republic, that eventually came to an end and we saw the Reagan Renaissance. We will see a renewal of Britain. We will see a revival of authentic conservatism. We will see a genuinely uh, small state, low tax, light regulation government. Sadly, I don't think any of the people in the current House of Commons are likely to be part of it. I suppose speaking of legislation, uh, one legislation you saw passed was the Equalities Act of 2010 through the Chamber under Brown Labour. Understandably, the Equalities Act created a mammoth of problems today, especially for the culture war. What should be Sunak's main aim when amending the Equalities Act in order to protect the state of society we once had? When I first came to the House of Commons, I um, fairly soon um, came around to the, the view that um, or, or rather, let me rephrase that. Um, fairly early on in my career in the House of Commons, I came to the view that there were really three bits of legislation that a Conservative government needed to get rid of. One was the European Communities Act. We got rid of that. One was what, what is now regarded as the Equalities Act in its various stages, and the other is the Human Rights Act. And I argued that until we got rid of all three, Britain couldn't really renew herself. Why? Because those three acts basically gave the permanent bureaucracy, the civil servants, the power of veto over anything they didn't like. And I, I saw this in my dealings with ministers. Ministers would say, I, I like the idea, Douglas, but unfortunately my civil servants tell me that it's illegal. And I would say to them, how can Parliament decide what the law is? How can, how can your civil service legal advice be the final arbiter and the final word? And I think the situation's got notably worse. Ministers are basically unable to decide public policy in Britain anymore. In fact, there's some evidence to suggest that civil servants are in effect uh, getting rid of British ministers. Look at the fate of poor old Dominic Raab. I, I suspect that just as we struggled to get rid of the um, uh, European um, Union legislation, we will have to fight to get rid of the Equalities Act, and we will have to fight to get rid of the Human Rights Act. Until we do that, the civil service basically has a de facto veto over authentic conservative government. When it comes to the culture wars, don't overestimate what it is that governments 
can and should do. Governments should certainly be uncompromising in their criticism of a lot of this woke nonsense. They should certainly be uncompromising in terms of mandating public bodies and publicly funded bodies to do decent common sense things to protect women's sports, to safeguard women's prisons um, against um, transgender inmates and all the rest of it. But a lot of this fundamentally boils down to people like you and me, Neera. It's up to us as individuals to say, no, we're not going to go along with the mandates from our employer to put our pronouns on our emails. No, we're not going to attend this compulsory leftist indoctrination in the workplace. No, we're not going to work for a company that tells us that we should be ashamed of who we are. And I, I, I think a lot of that basically boils down to us. Um, we, we need to take a stand in our individual lives. Um, we need to be prepared, if necessary, sometimes to lose our jobs in defense of our right to believe what we believe in. But we shouldn't always think of it as a responsibility of ministers. And I, I think that's one of the differences between Britain and America. Here in the United States, we see this extraordinary sort of popular revolt against this uh, leftist woke um, agenda. And it's, it's not so much being driven by politicians, although they get a lot of credit and attention for it. For example, Ron DeSantis in Florida. No, what, what is really putting fear into the woke boardrooms and the woke corporations and the woke bureaucracies in America is the revolt of middle America against it. They're just not going to put up with it. They're not drinking the beer that promotes transgender ideology. They're not attending Disney theme parks that promote uh, woke ideas. And, and, and they're not buying into this idea that it is for corporate elites to moralize and to lecture us on what we should and shouldn't think. And I, I, I think Britain should take a, a page out of America's book. You as an individual shouldn't put up with this nonsense if you don't agree with it. Um, so don't. Don't put up with it. So in my previous interview I did with Sir Desmond Swain, I talked about the answer really being is little platooners to quote Edmund Burke. We're the little ones actually fighting against this massive agenda. So the answer really lies with us as the individuals and our communities. Ab absolutely. Um, ab absolutely. And Burke, I think, um, had a, another metaphor. He, he wrote about um, um, watching a a field full of cows and how the crickets that were chirping might give you the illusion that they're the more numerous because they're noisier but actually it's the quiet um, bovines quietly chomping who, who constitute the, the majority um, I, sorry I haven't given a very good uh, um, a, a reiteration of, of, of Burke's famous metaphor but I think the crickets chirping on Twitter and the crickets chirping on social media and the crickets chirping and pontificating on irrelevancies like Sky News and the BBC Ignore them. Ignore them. They're crickets. Um, listen to the majority. And the majority needs to learn to speak up or it will be bullied. A small society can be bullied by a vociferous outspoken minority unless the moral majority are prepared to stand up. So, you know, don't, don't let your boss tell you to put your pronouns in your email. Don't let your um, employer or your corporation bully you. Um, you know, you've got to be prepared to tell people to get stuck. And if you do that, if enough of us do that, then we're not going to put up with this anymore. I mean, um, you know, a tiny, tiny self-righteous elite is trying to tell the rest of us what we should and shouldn't think. Um, and that's wrong. That's contrary to the idea of a free society. Uh, have some self-respect. Don't go along with it. 
I suppose this segues into my uh, other question here, and that the bombshell that Trip America was the election of Donald Trump against the odds of the liberal establishment that entrenched itself in the political system of America. Trump, as we know, was a good friend of Britain, trying to do his best to give Theresa May and Boris Johnson a good tr trade proposal. The special relationship that has been best seen was Trump visiting the UK, of course. That being said, if Trump had another four years in office, how would have that changed British foreign policy with the UK, and how would have we, how would have Donald Trump affected Brexit? We don't rule out the possibility of Trump having another four years. Um, sure. I think it's certainly very unusual for an American president to serve uh, two terms non-consecutively, but it has it has happened before. Um, I think it was Grover Cleveland, uh, or one of those late 19th century presidents who did it. I may have got that wrong. Um, but, you know, in a few weeks' time, we're going to see uh, uh, Sunak um, in Washington um, playing the role of prime minister um, opposite a president, Biden, playing the role of being president. Um, and just take a moment to reflect on that, Sunak and Biden. Now, compare that to the meeting of Blair and, and Bush um, 20 years ago or 40 years ago of Thatcher and Reagan. Um, I think it's fair to say that when Biden and Sunak meet, you will have the two most left-wing leaders of Britain and America in certainly my, my lifetime, um, probably uh, ever. In terms not what they, that they do, but of what they say, Sunak is presiding over an essentially socialist economic system where the government decides the price of energy, it uh, gives subsidies to people to buy their homes, it regulates things, um, it, it spends and taxes more than it has done so in 70 years. Britain is, for all intents and purposes, now on a socialist trajectory. He will be meeting with the President of the United States that has put America on a social democratic trajectory. Now, I don't think that either is sustainable. I, I don't think that it's by any means certain that Biden will be the Democrat candidate. I think there may be others who challenge him. But if Biden is the Democrat candidate for the White House, I strongly suspect that actually the Republican challenger, even if it is Trump, will win. I'm not sure that most Americans are reconciled to seeing their country become a European-style social democracy. And this November, they will have a, a say on that. What a pity it is that in Britain, British voters don't seem willing to say no, they don't want a socialist government run by a nationally conservative leader. Um, I, I think America may yet again um, surprise us in November, but let's wait and see. I think this pans out very well to my next question here. We, instead of the Trump four years, we had the Joe Biden four years, and what we've seen Joe Biden create is the vibe of the special relations between the UK and US slowly diminish. I mean, by virtue signaling, we've seen Joe Biden state that he disagreed with Liz Truss's economic policy, saying that he went to Northern Ireland to make sure Britain was not turning around, and recently snubbing His Majesty's coronation. So how will everything pan out in the next year or two with Britain, with British relations? And on board, as mentioned earlier, with Sunak and Biden, if there is not a trade deal, how would a theoretic trade deal between a left with Sunak and a left with Biden work out? 
it's weird, isn't it? This this constant sort of desire to almost sort of pop a snoot at, at the Brits. Um, you know, it's 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 very odd, and I, I I don't really understand it. I mean, the United Kingdom is one of the United States' true allies in the sense that. Um, we do more trade with each other than pretty much any other two countries. We um, have a military alliance. We've been on the same sides in uh, wars for um, the best part of a century. Um, but I, I think there's a slight tendency, and it's not just Biden. I think Barack Obama started it, of kind of reaching out to America's enemies and embracing them. And treating your allies with a little bit of the cold shoulder and contempt. And I think this creates problems for the United States because if word gets out there that America doesn't treat her allies right, it doesn't really help future American foreign policy makers. And I think we're beginning to see some of that. But, you know, irrespective of who is in the White House, with the world as it is and the Anglo American Imperium the way it is, it is always going to be in the interests of Britain to be strictly allied to the United States. So I, I wouldn't want people to allow rudeness is perhaps the right word, rudeness of one or two politicians in Washington. Um, Nancy Pelosi was famously rude to the Brits. Um, I don't think we should allow that grandstanding by individual politicians in Washington to undermine a relationship that actually is is systemically important for the United Kingdom. Now, look, most people in the United States that I come across are, are, are pro-British, are pro-fellow democracies, they're instinctively pro-British, they're very warmly disposed to the UK. Now, the, the President of the United States might not have been at the King's coronation, but boy, I can tell you there were many, many millions of Americans who were watching it with great interest. So, you know, the whole point about the transatlantic relationship, the reason why it's special is because it's not really shaped and defined by politicians. Transatlantic friendship is defined by the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of households in Britain that have kith and kin connections with the United States. And that, that is far more precious than here today, gone tomorrow, prime ministers or presidents. Speaking about presidents, we need to look at candidates who make up the presidency. So recently, for the Republican nominee, we had Ron DeSantis declaring that he would like to be the Republican candidate. And we've had Donald Trump declare that he would like to be a candidate. Out of the two Republican candidates, the DeSantis and Trump, who would you, in your own personal opinion, uh, well, vote for? Well, I, met, I met DeSantis. I like him. I've spoken to him quite recently. Um, I think he's very amenable to a lot of the things that I think a U.S. president ought to be amenable to, not least a trade deal and um, recalibrating aspects of our relationship with the United States. Um, don't forget Mike Pence. I don't, I don't know if he's going to win or not, but Mike Pence is one of those uh, people that you shouldn't underestimate. Um, never forget, if you're a Brexiteer like I am, Mike Pence, when he was governor of his state, quite newspaper adverts. Remember, remember when... Barack Obama came over and condescendingly said that if Britain voted for Brexit, we would be at the back of the queue, or the, the line, I think he called it. Yes. Pence's response, without any prompting from anyone that I know of, Pence, entirely off his own bat, took out advertisements in British newspapers the following week saying, whatever happens, you can always count on our state for friends. And then he listed all the companies in his state that had invested in Britain. 
and all the British firms that had invested in his state. Now, that man is a true friend of Britain, and we should wish him well. Um, Nikki Haley, I think, um, could well be a contender for vice president. Um, my, my, uh, my, my friend Vivek Ramaswamy, um, who, who I know and am very fond of, uh, don't underestimate him as a potential vice presidential contender. You know, I, I, I think actually a lot of the attention has been on Trump, but there's a lot of talent and ability from DeSantis to Pence to Haley to Vivek. You know, um, the Republicans have actually got some quite talented people out there now. So with this, then, the Republican Party has a vast array of good candidates ready for the presidency. In your opinion, what would be the key key aspects Republicans should look at when voting for a good presidential candidate? The most important thing I learned in politics was to vote for a politician not on the basis of what they say they're going to do, but on the basis of what they did when it was difficult to do it. Judge them on form, like a racehorse, judge them on form. And I think if you look at DeSantis, at a time when it was considered almost insanely mad to not lock down your state, he refused to lock down his state. Why? Because he looked at the data, he asked the obvious questions, and he couldn't get any convincing answers. No one was able to convince him that wearing a piece of cloth on your face would thwart the spread of a virus. No one managed to convince him that shutting schools um, was going to prevent infections from young people who the data at that time already showed were not vulnerable to the disease. So, you know, judge people on their character. Um, there are other things that DeSantis has actually done that appeared very unfashionable at the time, standing up to big woke corporations. Um, I, I think you should judge people on the basis of, of what they did when it wasn't advantageous to do it. Um, so I would, I would look at politicians on form. Mike Pence as well. You know, never forget that on January the 6th, 2021, when there was you know, a disgraceful mob attack on the U.S. federal legislature, Mike Pence played a key role in making sure that the constitutional system worked. Um, he was put under tremendous pressure, sometimes from people who would say they were on his side, to act unconstitutionally. And you know what he did? He not only did what he was supposed to do, when he was asked why he did it, he said he was following in the footsteps of, of Madison, and his loyalty was to the example of, of, of James Madison. So, you know, judge these politicians not on the basis of what they aggressively pronounce on Fox News. Judge them on what they've actually done when they've had difficult decisions to make. And I think, again, there are some pretty good people in the, in the Republican race here. Mm. I suppose on a side note, uh, wasn't it Ron DeSantis recently uh, who stated that if he was British, he would enforce the Brexit? Yeah, I mean, you know, he was being interviewed, I think I'm right in saying, by Alistair Heath, editor yeah. of the Sunday Telegraph. Um, I mean, Republicans in America tend to look very favorably on Brexit, so they, they don't really need it explained to them. Um, they kind of get the idea of national independence. So, you know, I, I, I'd be surprised if, if someone like DeSantis was anything other than pro-Brexit. Pro um, interestingly, actually, despite what people sometimes say, an enormous number of Democrats I know um, regard the idea of Britain leaving the European Union as entirely uncontentious. Um, they can't really see what all the fuss is about. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the default in America is that 
people believe that countries should be self-governing. It's um, the idea of the EU. When you explain to an American audience what the EU is, that you know it has these institutions run by people who aren't elected making decisions, when you explain that to American politicians on both left and right, that they find it a little hard to take in. My final question for you is, is that what is the outcome of the 2024 presidential elections? Do you have any prophesizing to do today? I don't. I would just say this. I rather fear that American presidential elections have become not so much a popularity contest as more of an anti-incumbent contest. You know, I fear that perhaps to some extent, you know, um, maybe Trump won because he wasn't Clinton uh, or, and, and as a sort of backlash to Obama. And I fear that maybe Biden won because he wasn't Trump. And I, I fear that maybe, um, you know, whoever is elected as a Republican may get in simply because people are so fed up with, with the current president. Um, I, I, I fear that if that is the case, whoever wins, American democracy loses. If you go back to some of the great sea changes in American politics, um, for example, Ronald Reagan being elected, you know, it was a conscious decision um, by Americans to choose a different path. Um, and they did it for positive reasons. Um, and, you know, a lot of people voted for Ronald Reagan, not against Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter actually is venerated by a lot of uh, Americans that I, I meet who regard him as a thoroughly decent president, irrespective of whether they voted for him or not. Um, so I, I, I hope that in 2024, we see Americans voting positively for the candidate they're supporting, not because they've got the bumper stickers to annoy the other side and they want to get one over the libs or, or, or annoy the, the, the conservatives or whatever it is. I, I really hope that is the case. So really it's a matter of prudence and self-respect. And on that note, I will end the conversation. Thank you, Douglas Cargill. It's been my pleasure.